welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have on Marion Lewis. She's a dean of the University of Cincinnati's uh, Lindner School of Business and a professor of management. She formerly served as dean at Cass Business School in London, and her work has appeared in major outlets such as the New York Times, CNBC, Financial Times, and the Harvard Business Review. And her new book, co-authored with Wendy Smith, is called Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you, Alan. Thank you, Leon. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Absolutely. And so to quote from Marianne and Wendy's book, they write, mm -hmm. in the research that we conducted over the past 25 years, the two of us noticed, noticed significant differences in how people understand and respond to their toughest problems. Our own quest has explored corporate behemoths such as IBM and Lego, startups and social enterprises, as well as nonprofits and government agencies. This research has taken us to places like Greece, Cambodia, and an island as, as one of the four corners of the flat world. We've learned from from the from all kinds of leaders as they grapple with some of the most difficult organizational challenges. We have also studied people struggling with personal concerns, from mundane issues to life-changing decisions. Regardless of context, such messy problems are difficult because they present us with dilemmas, choices between alternatives. Do I stick with the comfort of my current career path or make a bold jump to a new opportunity? Do I do what's best for my company overall or what's best for individual employees? Do I spend my time focusing on my own needs or put those needs aside to, to be there for others? We feel tension, the experience of opposition. It feels like an ongoing tug of war and it begs for a response. So I love that. And I love that it focuses, a lot of this work applies to so many different areas. I mean, as you know, we said before we started filming in terms of therapy and how kind of I conceptualize it, but also I love that we can apply this at broader structures and we can apply this to organizational thinking. So before we get into the different applications and obviously kind of how some of these ideas pop up in particular instances, especially in our you know specific lives, uh, can we talk about, first of all, what is either or thinking and how why do we tend to get stuck in it? Um, either or thinking uh, is really our our default. It's a very rational, logical approach. It's it's a very human tendency when we face something that feels like you know I've got a job opportunity. Do I stay or do I go? Right is one that we think about a lot. You know, we weigh the pros and cons of both. We put them literally on a scale, and we make a choice. And that's an either or. The problem with an either or is that it limits us immediately. I mean, are we really stuck with those two choices? What else might be there to consider? But furthermore, the more we apply an either or approach, the more we tend to lean toward a favorite side. So wh whichever side it is, let's focus on ourselves or others, we tend to reinforce that approach over time until it's really a strength has become a weakness and we've missed the other side that we also need. So we see this either or everywhere, um, but it is something that we, we are really in many ways trained to do from early childhood. It feels like we've got a sense of control when we can weigh a pro and con and make a choice, um, but it's really a faulty sense of control. Because a lot of these choices will come back. We'll have to make it again, self and other, today and tomorrow, right? Efficiency, innovation, you, you name the tension. More often than not, um, every choice is part of an ongoing journey in that tension. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, and I could totally relate to how it could be limiting. I mean, just to give a sort of a quick example, if I had to apply this, let's say, to a relationship. 
say I've had the choice, okay, um, stay in this relationship because this offers me uh, incredible value and uh, we both get something out of it and or maybe leave the the relationship because um, things have been unpleasant and, um, you know, and then there's sort of this tension between the two choices. But what's interesting is I'm only thinking about two different options, right? I mean, what if what if I thought about uh, I mean, of course, I can think about those two things, but what if I integrated um, my thought process? What if I thought maybe there's a way I can uh, resolve uh, the issue I'm having uh, with that person, right? While recognizing that there's an issue that I don't necessarily have to think, oh, there's only two ways out of this situation, right? And and, what, and then speaking of resolution, it's interesting, and I love that you mentioned this because psychologically speaking, I tend to do this. So when I'm presented with several options for me, so some people get stuck in that, right? It's sort of like getting stuck mm -hmm. in the mud where you're thinking, oh, well, right. you know, I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to kind of put off even making a decision. I actually do the alternative. What I do is I just make a snap decision and I'm like, great, I'm choosing option A over B and I'm just rolling with it and I'm never, never thinking about it again. So I love when you kind of get into the psychology of this. You talk about that. You talk mm -hmm. about how people, how they kind of avoid in different ways. So one of the ones is the obvious one where you know you just you're not making a decision and that's the one that everybody can see as avoidance but then the other one is kind of avoiding the anxiety and the tension and living with it so marianne can you talk a little bit about that some of the strategies that we use in terms of either or thinking and how kind of it helps us manage our emotions well and and alan i love the example you were just using of a relationship because i mean relationships are certainly not black and white right yeah. they're always nuanced and complicated now i'm not saying sometimes sometimes we have to make a choice right we may get to a point it's it's abusive it's it's unhealthy whatever the case to make a choice but to your point leon right on the one hand these tensions i i find that they're a double edged sword right in many ways um they can be paralyzing and destructive right on the negative side but they can also spur change and learning that's really important and powerful right that that feeling you get with an anxiety with tension i mean even when i say the word i can feel it in my chest and as soon as you feel it, to me, that's the, that's a trigger. And the question is, can we use that trigger to question why? Why are we having that emotion? What's going on? Can we dig a bit deeper? Um, can we build a more holistic understanding of what's going on? Look at it from multiple angles and work through it, right? Accept it and work through it. Or we could do what you were just saying, Leon. One, we can just avoid it, put our head in the sand and hope it goes away. Or we could make a really quick decision. And here's where I would say a quick decision can work. And maybe this is what you meant by that too, is you make a quick decision and you see if it works, if it, you know, and you kind of just keep, we call that tightrope walking, right? Mm -hmm. You make a decision and you walk, look around and say, did it work? Maybe we make a, another one, we add to it. But to your point, Ellen, the other question could be, well, but how could we improve the relationship, right? It's mm -hmm. not stay or go, it could be change, right? right. Yeah. In, in a, a host of different ways. Oh, so yeah. Can we talk about that? So especially in terms of relationships, I like that we've kind of gone down this road, like right? So, yeah, yeah. Right. Because the relationship is actually the kind of simplest idea. Oftentimes we think, okay, do I just accept the person as they are or do I just kind of walk away and do my own thing? Right. So Alan, I'm actually now going to go to you since you, you know, since you already mentioned that. Sure. Um, okay. So if you had to start thinking about how to resolve a relationship, like any, whatever, you know, particular struggle that you're having, like what, what could that third option be? Because that's one I think people get stuck in. Uh, for me, I'm the type of person that likes to you know, I, here's the thing for me, I, I like to explore every single possible perspective option, try to also think about, have some sort of empathy, think about from their perspective, like what's their experience of me, you know, uh, not to become sort of selfish and, 
sort of uh, absorbed by my own perspective on on the situation. I try to uh, explore having a conversation with them, letting them know what my feelings are. And then, because a lot of times in, in relationships, I notice that a lot of times you you have you carry this expectation that the other person knows what it is that you're thinking or feeling. You almost have this mm-hmm. thing like, oh, they can read my mind. And if they don't do this thing I'm expecting of them to do, uh, then because they're violating that expectation, you know, minus points for them or or that's it. But sometimes letting them know, oh, this is actually how you made me feel in this particular uh, situation, or this is just how I feel in general. They're like, oh, wow. Like, it, it, here's the thing. Every person's going to be different in a relationship. Not everyone is going to be uh, incredibly nice. Not everyone is a, a perfect uh, human being. But there is a chance that through communication, by letting them know how it is that you feel, they might actually be surprised and then be like, oh, you, you've been feeling this way the whole time. That's not at all how I wanted you to uh, perceive me. Uh, no, th- this is what I was thinking. Oh, this is what I meant. Oh, this is why I did this. And then all of a sudden that allows for more conversation to take place and maybe um, maybe maybe resolving whatever the, the issues are. Now, I know that these are a lot of maybes and hypotheticals, uh, mm-hmm. but he, I mean, I, a lot of relationships that I, I've had that haven't um, uh, succeeded, uh, it's through lack of communication or misunderstanding. And sometimes mm-hmm. when you actually have these conversations and you explore different options, different perspectives, and you try to embrace the the tension and discomfort um, that that occurs as opposed to trying to avoid it. Uh, or leave the situation, um, you might be pleasantly surprised and the other person might be pleasantly surprised and mm-hmm. that could lead to some sort of resolution. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I would I would note on that, I mean, some of the things that that I've, I've read that Leon's written about CBT, I mean, there's also the perception versus reality. And are you, impl- are you over-assuming what's going on in the other person's mind? Right, right, right. How do you how did you juxtapose your expectations and your beliefs versus diving into what are they really feeling? What do they really mean by what they're doing? I'll, I'll go a different, maybe off the beaten path place. So Wendy and I in our in our book and in our research often turn to paradox. And so these these tensions that feel like contradictions when they're also interdependent. Right. I mean, some of what we're talking about is, you know, do we fo- focus on ourself or other and you need both. Now, the question is, how do you think yin yang? How do you enable both at the same time? Well, you know, at, at one way that you can think about alternatives is, is you, you can play with notions of time and space. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm getting really philosophical, but I mean, Einstein and, and, and Niels Bohr and others did this even with, you know, how do they leverage paradoxes when they were studying quantum physics. But in the case of relationships, it might open up a whole host of areas. Think about time, you know, do you take some separation? Mm-hmm. Do you find, do you take a vacation together? I mean, right, how do you make compartmentalize what you're doing in the relationship to either be closer and or farther apart to figure out what's going on? But you could do the same thing with space. Mm-hmm. I mean, I lived overseas for a while, right? Within a relationship that you could say, look, let's use that space positively when we're apart and then even more powerfully when they're together. My mm-hmm. point being, I think it's more than just, are we together? Right. Yeah. 
I, lo I love the concept of paradox being paradoxical too. So before we even move into both and thinking, I love that. So, you know, kind of as you're reading the book, you're thinking, oh, okay, great. So, you know, both and thinking is good and then either or thinking is bad, which is obviously very black and white. So right. you guys, yeah, you guys actually <laughs> argue that that's not the case, right? So either or thinking is applicable in some cases. And you mentioned the notion, like you just said before, of tightrope walking, right? So can you tell us a little bit about that and why either or thinking can sometimes apply and actually be the more beneficial version of thinking or, you know, making decisions? Well, I, yeah, I, when we think about either or thinking, it's efficient. Yeah. It's clear, right? It, it's about making a choice. Um, it's also limited. So the point with tightrope rocking, we, we talk about one of the uh, one of the benefits of, of, of both and thinking is actually making either or choices over time, but realizing there are more choices. Mm -hmm. It's not a one off. So, I mean, I'll go to, I'll go away from say an interpersonal and, and because we work a lot with organizations. And, and so one, an issue that we hear all the time from businesses is do we focus on our current product or do we move into some bold innovation? We do this in our lives. Do I fo focus on my current target or do I learn and explore, right? Same question. Mm -hmm. Well, we might need to make a decision today. That's an, that could be an either or decision. Let's weigh the pros and cons about what our resources right? What our issues need at this moment. But with an understanding, we're going to have to make that again, right? We may decide right now, we got to hit our targets. We got to make sure we got the profit. We got, we're about to, you know, have financial statements come out or annual reviews, right? I'm doing organizational, individual. And so today we're going to hit the targets, right? We're going to focus on the core. But tomorrow we might have a little more, you know, slack, we may be looking around and saying our competitors are really moving fast or technology has changed. And so tomorrow we may say we're going to need to explore and work on some bold innovation. That's this mm. type of walking. Yes, I am making decisions that are either or in the moment, but is with this broader horizon I'm walking on the tightrope. I'm literally looking forward and I'm making these micro decisions over time. And a challenge we hear from leaders in particular is, but then I feel inconsistent. Are people going to think I'm waffling or people? Well, I think we do this in our own lives. Back to your question of why do we either or so much? We want to feel consistent. But you can feel consistent by saying it is both. We right. are going to have to do both over time. Today, we're doing X. We've had, we've had leaders we work with who will start a meeting reminding people, we need both and both sides of this coin. And today, based on what we're seeing, we're going to put more emphasis on the today or right. right either way. But the point being, they're demonstrating I am tightrope walking, which is a cool way of saying I'm making an either or in a both and world. Right. And it's going to be both over time. Right. And I love that you're saying when you're tightrope walking, you're essentially not going to either extreme. I mean, the idea is the balancing yes. act. Yeah. The example right. that you, you, yeah. And the example that you use is even when we're walking, we're essentially balancing, even though we don't kind of sense it. And we feel like, okay, I'm just going from point A to point B, but we're constantly right. slightly shifting ourselves. Again, imperceptible, but we're constantly shifting ourselves. So what's so interesting about that is that, you know, psychologically speaking, when I talk to my clients about this, oftentimes they struggle with what authenticity means. And if they're doing something that's counter to their character, you know, whatever that is, 
uh, you know, does that mean that they're being disingenuous? Because one of the things that people hate being is fake. Uh, so and they hate other people perceiving them as being fake. So what's interesting, and again, going back to the concept of both and is that we are not we are a hodgepodge of traits and those traits right. pop up in, right in different situations. So it's so interesting to me that people love to kind of consider and I get it, there's a safety involved, but they love to conceptualize conceptualize themselves as being something either than something else. So it's like, you know, I'm a risk taker, or I'm somebody who's preoccupied with safety, or let's say, you know, I'm somebody who's super courageous, or I'm a coward, right? And it's so interesting how these concepts define people. Yet, if you're thinking about those moments, it realistically, if you're looking at the objective span of that person's life, you can probably find many moments where you were the opposite thing. And oh. that's okay. Yeah. And actually, there's so many different angles we can take. But yeah. just on that note, I mean, even somebody's conception of authenticity is is interesting right i mean if they if they themselves define it as oh anytime i'm acting counter to this trait i'm used to having like oh i'm usually not courageous therefore if i act courageously oh i'm acting outside of my usual you know personality and therefore i'm not being authentic right but then on, on another level it's like well how do you know that that uh that personality trait is that's actually authenticity that's that's the real you that could just be that could be a false conception and then you mm -hmm. taking uh, an action that's outside of your usual traits might actually uh, help to sort of expand your your identity. And therefore, you might think about it wrong just because it feels uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not authentic. It, it could be something that's beneficial in the long run. Right. I love that. And now to kind of get. Yep. And now to get into both and thinking right now is kind mm -hmm. of in the conversation. So what happens now? So when a person says, well, you know, it's really hard for me to sort of see the kind of paradox or to live with it or to live with the tension. Now, how do we kind of start exploring this? And what do we tell people about sort of how cognition works and essentially how life works, right? How fundamentally there are these underlying paradoxes that whether or not you avoid them, they're going to be there. Well, Wendy and I always say we start by changing the question mm -hmm. because the questions we ask ourselves or others immediately limit our options. Right. So if you think about a classic either or um, dilemma, we often say, do I do I stay or go? Right. Do I do X or B to be authentic? Do I right focus on today or tomorrow? Mm -hmm. But as soon as you've said that, you've limited yourself to two and you've made yourself have to weigh these pros and cons. I mean, while it sounds like a simple change of words, we think it's, I mean, this is, you know, it is classical CBT. It is reframing. How do we frame to ask ourselves, how might we accommodate A and B, right? Mm -hmm. How might we reframe authenticity? I love what you guys were just saying, right? Authenticity, if we framed it, as we sometimes hear people say, means singularity. That's not what authenticity means authenticity means our whole selves mm -hmm. and our whole selves are complicated right. and nuanced and contradictory and that's all okay right but mm -hmm. it's a the we always say the first piece of both and thinking is to reframe the question and just actually question our question and ask ourselves why are we even framing it this way because we've limited our possibilities and ourselves in that process so that's the first piece to us is, and to us, that's both cognitive, but it's also emotional mm -hmm. Hmm. because one of the reasons we don't reframe is that our emotions get in the way, right? Mm -hmm. We get anxious, we get fearful, right? It's that classic challenge of say being, being bold and risk-taking, but ambitious, right? Brene Brown's needing vulnerability. It's two sides of the same coin. Yes. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. right? 
Yeah, and then thinking about sort of uh, well, thinking about both and thinking in the now since we I know we brought up the kind of CBT component, it's so interesting to me that when I kind of focus on CBT, and a lot of times it's sort of ta taught this way, which I don't necessarily agree with, where the idea is that you have kind of your rational component and then you have the emotional side, and essentially and fundamentally the purpose of CBT is to use that rational component to kind of manage or in some way subdue you kind of the emotional part of you, which is I would say a bastardization of what CBT is supposed to be, but oftentimes it really is taught that way. And most people think of it that way. So I mentioned this, you know, before we started the show that when we had Massimo Piliucci on, he actually, he talked a little bit about this, not just in terms of CBT, but in terms of stoic thinking. And mm -hmm. he said that, you know, a lot of times when people think of stoicism, they think of, again, another bastardization, they think about stoics kind of using their reason to quell their emotions, where it's like, I am purely rational, like Spock, right? I don't have any emotions. Like this other part of me doesn't necessarily exist. It's the denial of it. And so he argued that, no, no, no it's a kind of harmony that you're supposed to cultivate your emotions and your reason are supposed to live together and in a way work for each other. And I found a lot of what you said in terms of both and thinking to be applicable to CBT and just kind of emotional affect regulation, because what we're saying fundamentally is that both sides, right? Just like the yin and yang, both sides in some ways have a little bit mm -hmm. of a kernel of the other, right? So when we're thinking about the rational right. component, I mean, so just to kind of try to conceptualize this, it's really the motions that re lead us to think, right? So it's like, let's say, I don't know, I sense danger somewhere, right? And I would say, I'm, I don't know, I'm sitting next to Alan and I get really anxious. Now, all of a sudden I start to think, right? I'm like, oh, why am I anxious? What's mm -hmm. the data telling me, right? So the evidence says this, the evidence against my belief says that. But essentially what I'm doing is I'm using that as that anxiety as a starting point for rational thinking. And then at the other end of it, when we're thinking about the component of the emotional and the rational, we're essentially saying to ourselves, okay, what is it about the rational that we're trying to do? Like, why are we using it? Oh, right. Because we're using it to, to manage the emotion. That's the stuff that's kind of springing up. That's making us feel, you know, kind of crappy and really negative. Negative and it's not necessarily something we want to have. We want to kind of try to feel better. You know, we want to mitigate our suffering, whatever, right? So it's like it works in this perfect harmony. And I love that essentially that's what you say and in, in using the concept of the yin and yang that you can't, that these paradoxes are all interdependent. You can't really have, again, reason over here, emotion over here. And in some ways or another, kind of they work in a, a master kind of slave dichotomy where, yes, the reason is always the sort of the tyrant and the master and the emotions have to kind of learn their place. And I love that you're saying essentially, no, it's not like like that well I, I i would i am saying that and i would add there's actually three kind of components to paradox that you're playing with there that i think it's worth calling out because we especially in in more the west versus say the far east i mean we look a lot to tai chi and other areas when we think about paradox but it's about contradictions that are interdependent and that are persistent meaning they don't go away right right so what I, again, I go into like self and other innovation and efficiency, uh, love and hate. I mean, you know, these don't go away. And they're actually two sides of the same coin, which that interdependence fosters the persistence. But when you can come to a place of acceptance that they're not going to go away, really our push is to say, then let's push, get ourselves out of even words like harmony and balance make me nervous because I think it's harmonizing and balancing. And I know I'm just maybe playing word games, but I think we put so much on ourselves that we think there's this static place we can get to. And it's not, it's mm -hmm. a journey. And that I think gives us some hope and empowerment to move forward on the tightrope. 
Right. So what I hear you saying is that it's it's kind of absurd to think that you're always going to be harmonizing, right? So the idea is right. that, yes, going back to tightrope walking, is that sometimes you're going to have to fluctuate between contradictions. And, you know, again, thinking about this in terms of therapy. So this is actually something that comes up a lot in my sessions where sometimes patients... So I don't want to, I want to kind of try to sum this up. Uh, so we have something called the cognitive thought record. And all it just means is it's a way for you to reform your, reframe your thoughts in a pretty manualized and structured way. So there's kind of a system, you go through it, and then you're like, oh, okay, this is what the kind of rational or realistic thought is, right? So uh, not to get into that too much, but what I'm saying is that a lot of times uh, patients will say something along the lines of like, well, you know, I'm just too anxious to do the thought record. Uh, I just feel, let's say, too upset or too angry or too scared to uh, to think critically. It just, it doesn't work that way, right? So, you know, and then I beat myself up because I'm thinking like, oh my God, you know, harmony is the result. Like I, I need to do this to, you know, to maintain or return to equilibrium. And so my thinking is that, no, man, sometimes what's going to happen is the stresses are going to be so kind of compounded. And so, uh, kind of severe or significant that, yeah, it's going to be pretty hard for you to critically think. So even mm -hmm. though the thought record is kind of a tool that we use, and yes, in the long run, if we're looking at, you know, kind of the space of, of your treatment, yes, the thought record is going to help you kind of manage your emotions and feel better in the long run. But we're saying that in, if we're plotting it, you know, let's say it's a chart of some sort and we're plotting, you know, across like a, we're plotting a line in terms of how you feel, we're seeing on average, you're feeling better, but yes, in every single moment, you don't have to use the thought record. So yeah. what that means is that sometimes you're going to have overwhelming emotions. Honestly, sometimes you're not really going to feel much of anything. So, and that's just what it is to live as a contradictory person that sometimes it's going to work. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you're going to want to use it. Sometimes you're not going to want to use it. Sometimes you're going to be able to use it. Sometimes you're not. Yeah. And also on that note, I mean, this sort of relates to both and thinking, uh, I think even, and, but this is no knock on CBT. I think CBT is uh, uh, beautiful. It's just that th there could be other approaches as well to sort mm -hmm. of dealing with, um, your thoughts or your emotions, right? I mean, for example, one might argue that the resistance to the emotions that you might be feeling might actually cause you to rationalize and think all these different thoughts, these thousands of different thoughts. And yes, uh, using CBT to organize and sort of rationalize why this thought makes sense and that thought doesn't make sense in order to resolve that emotional tension yep. is is beautiful. It's It's great. It's just that you could argue that maybe actually not necessarily resisting the emotion and feeling the emotion completely mm -hmm. to its hilt might actually at the root uh, stop you from necessarily thinking and rationalizing all these different right. thoughts. And mm -hmm. so there might be different approaches how to uh, deal with this. But uh, so I don't know if that's sort of. No, I love that. Yep. And by the yeah. way, I would even argue like great CBT. And again, this is sort of more ideal. Uh, what you find is the kind of harmony between the two, right? So, I mean, I'm going to just give a kind of a simple conception. So let's say on the one hand, your anxiety says to you, you know, like I am in danger, right? And then on the other hand, the reframe thought, let's say might say something like, or at least your perspective, you're kind of forward thinking in terms of what you think the reframe thought is going to be, is going to be, let's say I'm safe, right? Technically, both of those things aren't necessarily true, right? These are two extremes. So what a lot of times my clients think about is that when they say, what they're like, I'm doing the thought record. I'm thinking I'm supposed to go to some other extreme. And I tell them no, because essentially there's some kernel of truth in what your emotions are telling you. So if you have anxiety, I mean, yes, it might be overblown to whatever extent. I mean, it's kind of hard to quantify, but the anxiety is there for a reason. I mean, there's a reason why you're scared. There's risk involved in everything that you do. So when we're thinking about, again, both and and conceptualizing in that way, technically neither side is actually right. So remember, there's a kernel of truth in everything. That's that exactly. yin and yang. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and maybe I'll, 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 get, I'll suggest another uh, technique, and, and this is moving away from kind of the psychotherapy techniques, but we call mm -hmm. it a polarity map. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we say, you know, the first step is you change the question, but the se second is that you separate and connect. Mm 
So when we're doing kind of the, the either or approach, we separate and analyze, right? We're just going to make a choice from it. But look, using both and, and we typically think about Barry Johnson. Don't know if you've ever read any of Barry Johnson's work on, on polarity mm -hmm. man management. Mm -hmm. but as you weigh the pros and cons of both sides, we talk call that separating, really diving in because what we want people to be able to see, and we do this with individuals, with teams, with C, you know, C-suite leaders, what you can see better when these are paradoxical tensions is that the, the cons of one side are the pros of another and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And when you start to see that, you realize one, you need both because you want the pros of both sides. Right. But it also helps you dive into the cons and realize, and I can't remember which one of you guys said this, is how do you avoid leaning too far to one side? Right. How do you know if if you make a decision, on right, and you're looking at these two sides and you start to go to an extreme, you'll see yourself starting to hit the negatives, the cons. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes when we have that happen, we swing the pendulum to the opposite. And sometimes we can swing too hard. We can actually overcorrect. Right. And very quickly go from the pros of the other side to their cons. And what you see is the shape that feels like an infinity loop. <laughs> so this polarity map we often use with individuals and teams, one, to help them realize we've all been there. We've all been in a vicious cycle where we play so hard on one strength that it becomes a weakness. We mm -hmm. swing over. You see my kind of signals. But the more that we kind of we can understand those dynamics, we've seen them before, the better off we can be sensitizing ourselves to when they start to happen again. Right. When do we need to take the next step? How do we need to move forward? So the separation actually helps us connect. Because mm -hmm. we start to realize, boy, we really do need both of these sides. I need to take good self-care and self-reliance, and I need intimacy and love, right? You kind mm -hmm. of, I've just mm -hmm. pulled out, you know, a self versus other. So how do we make sure we're doing both sides of those? And how do we connect them in a way that maybe through the nature of our relationships, the nature of our use of time and space, that we have time for both the myself and my partner, Right. I mean, we can play a number of different ways there, but a polarity map helps dissect both opposing sides and their interconnections. And we find yeah. that really helpful just to work through and get away from the And Sometimes what we'll do, especially if we have like a polarized group, have the opposite side do the pros and cons of the other. Hmm. Because as they do it, they'll kind of realize, oh yeah, there are some pros. Like, no, no, you have to defend the pros of the other. And you'll find it opens us. Yeah, that reminds me of um, when we had Kirk Schneider on the show. We, we talked about his book. We're going to have him on again, actually, next week. But um, he had a book, uh, Depolarizing America. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah, he would have these um, uh, groups and they would actually yeah, outline what are the pros and cons of each side, have them meet and talk with each other. And uh, I have Kirk's book right up here. I, I, uh, his book, The Paradoxical Self, I think is brilliant. Mm -hmm. Just yeah, brilliant. No, I, I'm no, going to have awesome, to find him. Yeah. Oh, he's fascinating because I love the way he approaches um, psychology as necessarily contradictory and paradoxical. I mean, the way he uses Kierkegaard, I think, is brilliant. Yeah. yeah. No, I didn't yeah. realize you had him on. That's wonderful. He, he oh, yeah. My, you know, I'm in management, so I went early into the rabbit holes of, of psychology and sociology and anthropology and philosophy and then mysticism. And then I thought, where have I gone? But <laughs> it was people like Kirk that made me realize we're, we're actually seeing the same patterns. Mm -hmm. We're seeing these paradoxical patterns 
in the individual, in groups, in organizations, in society. And our my real hope is to help people, and I know he and others are doing the same, you as well, to get more comfortable with the discomfort of those tensions because they're natural Yeah, and learn how to work through them. 100%. And what's interesting, this happened to me in my sort of early 20s, but it's when I was listening to uh, Alan Watts. He, he brought uh, Eastern, or sorry, he he made Eastern philosophy a little more popular in um, in the West, essentially. Yeah. And there's this one thing that he said that always stuck with me. I, I usually have trouble remembering a lot of things that I've read or learned, but this thing I, I didn't forget. It's that every explicit duality has an implicit unity. So for example, uh, for example, yes and no, explicitly they're different, but why they're united is one relies on the other for its existence, light and dark, mm -hmm. love and hate. They define each other. Mm-hmm. And what, what was interesting to me about that is then it, it even like hearing that, that made me very interested in thinking about like, if, if I ever took a side, why does the other side believe whatever it is that they believe? Right. And then I try to look at what they're thinking and then what I'm thinking and then sort of uh, integrate that and try to sort as best as I possibly can. You're always going to have some kind of blind spot. But as best as possible, try to look at everything from sort of a zoomed out perspective in order to find either uh, truth or or try to approach things the best possible way that works for everyone. Right. Right. Because I think what you're saying is there's a kernel of truth essentially in each side. I mean, you might support one more so than the other, but there's something about another side that makes you go, oh, OK, I mean, I could see why they would think that. Plus, uh, I mean, if we're thinking in terms of I mean, th th this is this is uh, I'm not trying to get into this too much but if you think in terms of who is right and who is wrong if you think about mm -hmm. politics or something right. like that i mean i if somebody believes so vehemently whatever it is that they believe you know everybody thinks they're they're good everyone thinks that they're on the side of uh, right or yeah. on the side of god or or whatever um i i mean or they think they're the hero yeah uh i find that very interesting because i i would think that too right and they think it but they're for some reason they they're thinking whatever it is they're thinking and I'm thinking whatever it is I'm thinking, and I find that weird and I I, I don't want us why why are we fighting them we both believe we're good right or we both mm -hmm. believe we're in the right we want what's best we want what's best for the world right sure so then I try to look at that and then see you know what's what's going on here now okay perfect right so because now Marianne now we're talking about overarching values this was actually mm -hmm. my favorite part of the book I love that you brought oh, that awesome. up right so yeah there we go right so <laughs> when we're talking about like uh conflicting kind of thoughts or conflicting positions right what you're talking about or what you guys get into is now again overarching values kind of how can we unite them based on shared goals shared values shared visions etc right so can can you talk about that? Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I we see a lot of vicious cycles and the opportunity for virtuous. So, I mean, I, I, we talked briefly about two vicious cycles, and I think you're getting at the third because we see three. One is we call entrenchment, which is the rabbit hole, going down one side so deeply that it's all you see and until you hit rock bottom. The second is that overcorrection. We call that the wrecking ball, right? Because you swing so hard, you actually destroy the good that you've done in the meantime. And right. then the third is polarization which we think of as trench warfare. And what we're really talking about is different individuals, different groups in different rabbit holes, right? Shooting at each other, becoming increasingly polarized, insular, dehumanizing the other, right? Actually pulling it apart 
because I couldn't agree more, Alan. I mean, nine times out of 10, and Wendy and I just really love going into political issues ourselves because we both lean just slightly to other places. And we can talk so much because it it breaks your heart because you realize, wow, we really do want the same thing. The question, the issue is we see how we get there differently. Well, mm. that's okay because there are lots of ways to get there. There is no straight line, mm. right? These are really intricate. Um, and I think you, you might be talking about, um, Leon, in the book, I, 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 there we'd use a number of examples, but it was fascinating for me to be in London during the Brexit vote. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being an outsider, I was, I mean, and I'm the dean of a business school. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot be ignorant. I have mm -hmm. got to try to understand what's going on. Talked to lots and lots of different people. And the more I learned, the more complicated it became, right? It be mm -hmm. and, and then you'd watch the news and hear these statements that were so simplistic. I mean, to, to like a, a ridiculous amount. Mm -hmm. Now you can imagine what happened in the US like shortly thereafter, but I'm watching it just thinking, what is going on? And I'm, I'm walking with um, Jose Manuel Barroso. He was the former uh, president of the EU. And I'm walking with two members after Jose has just given a talk. It was fabulous. It was just so interesting to hear him talk about the complexities. And I have two board members of my on my board. Both are on opposing side. One is a, a remainer and one is a lever. Okay. And I... I gone to both of them to educate me, help me understand what's going on in this incredible. And I knew that they were on opposite sides as we're walking with Jose. And the, the one, one of the gentlemen said, those people who voted to leave are ignorant, racist, bigot, uneducated. I mean, he just went through this thing and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have a fist fight. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have a fist fight. Right. Cause, but it was this incredible isolated, dehumanized, right? And I watched Jose Manuel Barroso and he realized, oh, this is why he was president of the EU, just with a big smile. And he didn't know what the other fellow, where as I'm, I'm watching like the other guy's body language start to, he said, you know what's amazing about this is that the complexities are enormous. Let's dive a bit further around this. And we sat down for coffee and and both gentlemen, by the end, were smiling. They're talking about what, what different reasons that they see needing the value of staying and leaving. But actually, it left the com conversation completely left whether we stay or leave. It was really about the values of centralization versus decentralization and hmm. where you might need one more of one than the other. And it was now I realize this is the challenge of politics. At some point, you have to vote. Right. Yeah. Right. We weren't having a discussion about voting. But I watched Manuel Barroso basically show how you would manage a negotiation in a com committee by getting everything these two gentlemen felt onto the table and play with the nuances and keep asking questions. And I left that always thinking, how do I avoid the defensiveness and ask better questions when we have these complicated issues? And it mm -hmm. is so hard to do in this world right now. We're so isolated. And I can't stand the dehumanizing negativity across. But I also think people actually want what's best. Mm -hmm. We just mm -hmm. see different paths. 
Right. And I think that's what's so important about shared values, because a lot of times what happens is I think people have different conceptions of what the other side is thinking or what they I want, just like agree. our side, right? Right, right. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, the other side, like they want to ruin our country or, uh, right. you know, they want to sort of, uh, let's say, I don't know, uh, deport all of the minorities or whatever the kind of conceptions are. So what's interesting about that is that, I mean, that's true to some extent. I mean, there are definitely subsections of people who do want that and do think that. But for the most part, and we had um, Nate Gowdy on last week, and this was a really interesting conversation. Yeah. He was actually at the insurrection. So he's a photographer for Rolling Stone and photographed it. And so we talked about the different types of people he met there. And he said, you know, he's like, a lot of them were help, really helpful to me, or some of them at least were really helpful to me. And he said, you know, there was a moment where he was pushed and there was another moment when he was attacked. And then there were other people at the kind of uh, the protests, whatever you want to kind of call it, insurrection. And he said, they, they were helpful to me, though. They helped me out. They kind of tried to talk me through it, et cetera. So what that says is that, you know, even though there are people that we're going to disagree with, and they're definitely going to be extremists on, on I, I hate saying this because it's sort of overused, but yes, on either side, even though I would argue that on the left, the extremists are like Antifa is nowhere near as bad as what it is on the right. Uh, but whatever, to put that aside. But what I'm saying is that you're always going to have people, and I would say the vast majority of people who are way more central than that, and who, even though they believe in different things, they essentially do have the same goal as you. And so I love that we can kind of sit at the table, even though maybe this is a little bit too idealistic, but as you're saying, it's obviously not. And obviously there are other examples that show that it's not, that we can actually get people to together and ask ourselves like what's best for all of us like we want the same things we want our children to grow up in a country that's right. sort of viable for all of us yeah um i think something that you mentioned that manuel did in terms of um structuring mm -hmm. a way that those two uh, members mm -hmm. of the board could could converse with each other i think it's just about um and it's something you talk about in the book too it it is about framing right i mean so if for example mm -hmm. individually yeah, if, if I were conversing with somebody and let's say they did say some sort of a surface level comment to me, like, like, for example, oh, they're racist, they're this and they're that. So I have a choice at, at that moment, say they're on the opposite side of whatever. It doesn't have to be a political spec. It could just be whatever argument. It doesn't matter. But uh, say mm -hmm. they say something like that. I, at that point, can choose to uh, react and also uh, come at them surface level uh, or I might not like their tone. I might. Right. Who knows? You could get into it and then you get into sort of a downward spiral of, you know, yeah. there's no more communication that can be held, especially since there's sort of a break in rapport. And now you're not even just going to just because you don't like that person. Now you're not going to listen to what they have to say. And right now it's focused on the person, not on the issue. Right. Yeah. Not on the ultimate desire either. Yeah. So then choosing to uh, ask uh, keep calm, not necessarily react, maybe ask questions keep like, calm, oh, so, carry on. <laughs> essentially, yeah. And maybe ask, oh, so, but like, why do you, why do you feel that way? Or what do you think about X, Y, Z? And then try to get them to now get into sort of a longer form conversation with you where mm -hmm. then, and then listen to what they have to say. Like, uh, the, I mean, this is, this is really old. I mean, it depends where you want to grab it from different, different, uh, people have, um, made this, saying very famous but seeking first to understand uh -huh. uh, then to be understood so uh -huh. if if you actually completely listen to whatever it is that person was saying even if they began with a surface level thought that could be a little bit um could could sort of engage you in the wrong way uh then they'll feel like oh from your listening oh this person respects what it is that i'm saying and then there's yeah. a, a little increase in rapport there then because you fully listen to what they said they might be now 
you might ask them, okay, so uh, would you like to hear my thought on what it is that you've said? It's respectful. Not everyone's going to have this level of communication with you because uh, this is a complicated sort of a dance. But uh, if you can successfully sort of navigate it, you actually could then get into a longer form conversation and then right. have that conversation and then actually get to know each other's values and maybe potentially meet somewhere in the middle. So uh, Manuel sounds awesome as far as that well, goes. Well, and you know, but, and I love what you're saying. I mean, really, it's been interesting just since writing the book, because um, Wendy and I have never studied politics. I mean, we've mm -hmm. always studied it, organizations, individuals, and groups, I mean, and typically in business, but so much has come at us from the political polarization side. One of the reasons I share that is it's become fascinating to me. So the book came out in August, and since then I've read, you know, The Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt, and Arthur Brooks, Love Your Enemy, and um, Ezra Klein's Why We're Polarized. And then you read Adam Grant, mm -hmm. right? Think Again. And they're basically all talking about the very vicious cycles that of polarization that are happening. And they use different lenses to explain why. And in my view, it's all, right? You said that, you know, the righteous mind, right? There you get into the hero kind of view, right? The more we're on the right, but everybody feels that. And the more you feel that, the more it pulls or Arthur Brooks, right? It, it goes more at a culture of, um, oh, what is his view? Kind of a deviance, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. basically that we believe you want to sink us, which then basically makes the pulling even harder against each other. And I love Adam Grant's view of it, which is, but if, if we thought more like scientists rather than like politicians or proselytizers, right? Um, we would be asking questions. Right. Mm -hmm. We would be asking to understand. Tell me more. Tell me, tell me why you why you think that way? Because one of the things that after reading Adam's book, and Wendy and I've talked about this a bit, and we know Adam a bit, um, is he's, his view is, if you can get to the more personal side of those questions, what someone, I mean, this is where the ultimate kind of wow can happen. Someone is likely to say something like, well, you know what happened to me when I was young? And they can tell a story that suddenly you think, it makes you realize this is, a, this is just a human Mm -hmm. who's had one set of experiences to filter these external ex events through. And there's a reason why they've leaned in a particular way. And then they tend to talk to others that think, and you know, and it reinforces over time, but by making it personal, not in a like name calling, but in a, there's a reason, right? We, Wendy and I did this going down kind of the explore, exploring, you know, ab abortion issues. Jeez, talk about some hot topics, mm -hmm. but this isn't, do you want, you know, the, the, the right to life, right, right to choose are so extreme that 90% of the people you talk with are in the middle mm -hmm. and, but they see different sides of like where you draw a line. And I realize that's incredibly complicated, but the stories of understanding why they are, where they are, are really powerful because right. they're personal. Yeah. And I mean, just to sort of bring this into the context, let's say of a corporation, um, yes. Let's say uh, somebody suggests a new change, like, oh, you know, uh, let, let's say, I don't know, um, I'll give a random example. It's a health insurance company. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the board, they recommend, okay, so, oh, we're used to using uh, this particular um, uh, customer relationship management uh, tool. So an example of one, they call this a CRM application. Let's let's call it a Salesforce, let's say. So, oh, we're used to using Salesforce. Um, we've been using Salesforce for years, right? 
And someone says, well, let's actually, there's this actually brand new one. The user interface is 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 incredible. Uh, the the way uh, it, if you use this, we're going to be more successful. They provide reason X Y Z, and then all the people on the border are like, "Well, we've been using this for years. Why? Uh, it's been successful for us. Uh, we don't need mm -hmm. to do that. Our our uh, our employees have been used to this. Uh, for them to even have learned uh, how to use this uh, tool, it took." this much time, uh, we, don't, we don't need to uh, shift to this new technology. I understand our competition has, and uh, all of a sudden they've improved in this way, but uh, here's this reason to justify uh, why we should keep it and that. And so they might be resistant uh, to change, mm -hmm. right? But then, you know, maybe somebody uh, comes into uh, that conversation and then says, uh, Okay, so uh, what are your exact issues with um, employing this new technology? And then maybe uh, you'd hear them out. Maybe, maybe mm -hmm. it's some of the reasons I highlighted here, right? And then maybe like, okay, well, I understand. Well, uh, did you know that actually this is um, uh, simpler or uh, you know what? Um, uh, this is actually more cost effective for us or whatever. I I know I'm being incredibly general here, but the thing is like, I can imagine how people at a company would be used to doing things the old way. And mm -hmm. then maybe somebody would pr pr suggest something new. And then maybe the both and version of this would be like, mm -hmm. okay, you know what? Let's try this new uh, tool or this new application or this new thing you're suggesting. But how about we do it this way? Uh, let's not introduce it just yet. Uh, we can we can do something called like a migration, like or mm -hmm. we'll migrate to this new tool. But well, first let's let everybody know in the company we're going to be switching to this new tool. And you know what? Let's let's give them a heads up. Let's say we're going to do this a year from now, six months from now, something like that. This way, already you're sort of engaging people and you're letting them know. Okay, be ready for some kind of change. You don't want to. Put that on them right you away. You know why I love this? Alan has literally cited an entire chapter in your book on experimentation. This is what <laughs> it's like the entire chapter. Well, yeah, yeah. essentially yeah. the idea is, you know, there's there's a way to do something new and then still cater to someone yes. who has that mindset of being used to the old. And and I mm -hmm. find that very interesting. Like there, there's a way to introduce new things, even though they're uncomfortable, uh, and then still you know, sort of baby step towards this, this yeah. new innovation. Yeah. And Marianne, as you're, as you're answering this, I would love to kind of, cause I know we didn't focus on this and I really wanted to, can you couch your answer into, or in the context of the examples of Lego and IBM and kind of how they dealt with experimentation and how they dealt with navigating between the new and the old? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, Lego is just one of my all time favorite examples mm -hmm. because they had such interesting vicious cycles uh, twice, right? right? It was what we really analyze. Um, but Alan, to your point about experimenting, I mean, what I love about experimenting, I would I would even expand it further is the opportunity to improvise, right? Yeah. How can you experiment with boundaries, right? Mm. With some guidelines so that within those experiments, you can be building from the old or potentially connecting to the old, even as you build the new. But I like your example of, of say, a, a new technology, because if you say, do we stick with the old or go to the new You've, again, completely limited yourself to those two. There may be a host of issues, but the first question I would ask is, is it really about Salesforce versus 
you know, pick the technology. Sure. What is it we're looking for? Is it about stability and leveraging more of what we already do? And or is it about, you know, exploring the new, really moving boldly into new opportunities? I think typically we get that old new stability change a lot in organizations. And the change will nine times out of 10 foster resistance. But if you can couch it with more of the old, right? If you can use the old to build some guardrails, some rules for improvisation, like, okay, let's, you know, the Salesforce actually has some really interesting capabilities that might let us connect with the new. Let's start to experiment with the new with an understanding that we're going to find ways to connect. Mm -hmm. Even if eventually we may decide to completely replace the new, the old with the new, right? But right. you can lower people's worries by saying, let's use some guardrails of the old as we experiment with the new. I mean, Lego did this considerably, right? They started to realize what the, it was, Lego wasn't a brick and it wasn't just a brand because that was everything. And then they went completely crazy. They made a better list of what do they think matters most mm -hmm. as they develop new products. And by doing that, those guardrails actually fostered a whole lot of creativity in the company, but it wasn't blue sky, anything goes. It was creativity that could connect back to what they were best known for, best at, right? Really built on their legacies and their strengths. That's where I think, to your point, Leanne, I mean, to me, Lego was really interesting is while they almost took themselves down by going so, swinging the pendulum so hard to radical innovation, I think it's incredibly impressive that they took a pause before they hit rock bottom and said, we need to learn from the strengths of radical innovation and what we've learned there from the strengths of our control, shared family values, approach to quality and pull them together. And now they continue to do these micro shifts between the two. They're really good at it because they say, this is who we are now. We are the old who's always experimenting for the new. Right there, their um, I think their vision statement is we inspire the biz inspiring the builders of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I mean, which sounds maybe just like words, but it's it's cool because you can hear the builders, you can hear the brick, and you can the traditions of Lego, and you can also hear their values of always wanting to push the envelope. Mm -hmm. And so they found ways to do both. But I think that's what improvisation is. It's a paradoxical approach to experimentation. It's not anything goes. Right. But, and then how did IBM falter? No. Say again? Yeah. How did IBM falter? Because that's kind of the other extreme, right? So Lego was able to sustain itself, but IBM wasn't. Well, and IBM's an interesting case because that's where Wendy started her research was with IBM when they were shifting from mainframes to um, cloud and, and new technologies. Now, her early work, they actually were, some of the teams were making it work, but mm -hmm. like a lot of firms, they missed opportunities to make the shift to decide that the new was actually going to replace the old, mm -hmm. right? Look at Blockbuster. They had the opportunity to buy Netflix. Yeah. I mean, talk about a hindsight being 2020, but Netflix is struggling now. I mean, every firm in the world goes through this challenge of old and new, right? The stability and, and leveraging what you have versus creating and destroying for the new. Every firm, I mean, that's the classic S curve that mm -hmm. we see. 
Um, so I don't think it's just IBM and Lego or Netflix or, or Polaroid. I mean, we, there's so many who never made it to the next S-curve. So, uh, yeah, and I that's I love that you're picking up on that. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about next. So when we're talking about the S-curve, right? So this is so interesting because I was thinking about this in the context of our podcast too. So a lot of times, and I'm sure you go through this as I do too, like when things are going well, we're like, oh, cool. Let's just you know, stay the course. Things are going really well. We're getting consistent viewership, et cetera, right? So what I love is that when you're thinking about the S-curve, you're essentially saying like, how do we kind of preclude that, right? How do we preclude that right. sort of downslope? So it's essentially, it's an S-curve juxtaposed on another S-curve. And the idea Always. is, yeah, and I love that, right? So the idea right. here is that before that downturn happens, like, first of all, how do we start to anticipate it? And how do we start to shift and kind of jump to another plateau as we're obviously, you know, kind of heading downward? So the idea is like, before this becomes a sinking ship, let's kind of try to innovate and pivot and get to a point where we have these new ideas and new kind of uh, sort of maybe even ways of implementing different ideas that we've already had in order to preclude that from happening, which obviously didn't seem like IBM was able to do. So can we talk about the S-curve? So essentially how it could work for us as opposed to obviously being detrimental? Absolutely. And I mean, I, the S-curve has been around for a while, but what I really love that you're saying, Leon, is increasingly, and I saw, I mean, many years ago, a guy by the name of Charles Handy, who's brilliant, wrote about mm -hmm. the personal S-curve, the second S-curve in careers. Arthur mm -hmm. Brooks just did it in Strength to Strength. Mm -hmm. S-curves work in our personal lives, too. Everything you just said that we tip, we think often about the big firms doing this, like in search of excellence type firms that have failed, it's our life, mm -hmm. Right. How do we start looking at what's next in our life? And like any S-curve, you need to actually be doing it when you're at the high of where you are now. It's right. when you have the most energy, resources, slack. But it's also the time when you look around and go, why would I, you know, don't fix it if it ain't broken type of thing. And so it's the classic place you don't start to look. Mm -hmm. More likely you wait until man, I have lost my mojo. I just don't feel like I'm in the right place anymore. But at that point, your energy is down, your morale, your confidence, right? Potentially your financial resources, if you've even left the job. Now mm -hmm. it's hard. Now it's really hard to start the next S-curve. So you need actually multiple S-curves working simultaneously. That's where we get into that paradoxical state. And it works at the individual level as well as the corporate and the team. Yeah. An example that comes to mind is there's a rapper named Master P who started No Limit Records. And so he has this, so he has a really brilliant business mind. The way he kind of said it and conceptualized it, was he's, he said, look, you know, a lot of rappers, find, or just musicians and entertainment folks, right? It doesn't necessarily matter. He said they find it really hard to accept that you're probably going to be on top for about three to five years, right? You know, five if you're lucky. And so he said, he said essentially like it's, you know, the flavor of the week. You're not going to reinvent yourself forever. And essentially, you know, as you age, like the younger kids who buy albums, they're not going to care about you anymore. This is just life. So he he says you have to kind of transition in that point when you're at a high. So within that three to five year period, he said, well, this is his thing. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be, it has to be the only way, obviously it's not either or, but he says, you have to start transitioning into products, man. He's like, you know, yeah. you could sell food. Uh, you could kind of start, you know, some sort of business on the side, whatever it is. And as you're taking that sort of notoriety that you have, or at least whatever fame, maybe not notoriety. So if you take some of that, you know, uh, pretty much you, whatever the fame, the recognition that you have, and then you, again, you know, you're thinking about X S curves and using one and kind of plateauing and then obviously going to the other. And so you're building your product because your name is already out there. People like you, right. they're going to, they already buy your records. They go to your music or they buy, go to your tours, they buy your music. And so he says, when you're thinking about products, right, you're thinking about the brand recognition. And then as you're obviously sort of flating away from the music industry, which is obviously inevitable, what's going to happen is people have already been buying your stuff. And as they've been buying your stuff and you're producing new products, different types of products, you're already kind of like Campbell's or whatever it is. You have a brand name that people trust. 
us, but you can only do that when you're at the height of your career. So he That's says right. what people, yeah, what people actually falter is they don't do that. And then they when people kind of, yeah, they wait too long. People stop caring about them. And then now you have a brand and people are like, oh, okay. He's just trying to make money because he's already kind of on the outs in the music industry. And he said, you can't do that. Uh-uh. Yeah. No, it's it's a great example. And I hope we can all kind of learn from that because that's how our lives and careers work over time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it's very interesting because, and I, I imagine like in the context of, um, could be, let, let's say in the context of a podcast, let's say somebody just started a brand new podcast. So we've been at it, what, close to three years now? No, over over three. We're up over almost three. at four. I We're almost done. at four. Yeah. Thank you. So but imagine, you know, a podcast just began, right? And let's say they have their marketing on point. Let's say they studied Dan Kennedy, Seth Godin, you know, whatever, other other figures. And they they, they know how to do sales copywriting and they know that the algorithm, SEO, they know how to, let's say, organize all these different structures in order to get the most views. They know how to do clickbait marketing, all of that. Fantastic. But they just began, right? And they let's say they did they did all of this at the very beginning, and the but the quality. Uh, so let's say they do get millions of people watching their stuff somehow, right? But the quality of what it is that they're offering might not match the amount of viewers that you're actually able to to get, right? right? And so I, I imagine that probably if you try to implement changes too fast. Right. Even though on the surface, they seem like they're really beneficial, it could actually be detrimental in the long run, because then maybe let's say you do have that, but then you don't have the skill, uh, then then you could lose all those people. And it doesn't really matter that your marketing is is fantastic yeah. or you might have to shift lanes mm -hmm. at that point. But um, but at the same time, also, uh, conversely, if you wait too long or not, not wait too long, rather, if you don't actually implement new changes and sort of observe what it is that, um, what are the effects of them? Then, then also, um, that could be to your detriment, right? Like, like uh, you get. I mean, caught I think in we're that. back on the tightrope. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And it's about not. I, I completely agree, right? I mean, the point yeah. of the tightrope is if you if you did swing too far, right? You made too big of jumps too fast, you're going to fall off. Right. But in the height of a podcast, when things are really going well, what a beautiful time to experiment. You will get be have much more forgiveness, right? Yeah, As you try to learn what could work but it doesn't mean a mass scale experiment right it could be smaller pieces but i do think that goes back to the tightrope it's try it see right a lot of uh experiment reflect try gather feedback try again and by doing it when you're actually in your strength you're absolutely going to have much more possibilities for the future and what might be version 2.0 because you're right. basically building 2.0 while 1.0 is in its peak. Yes. Mm. Yeah. 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 So experimenting just probably you would recommend maybe experimenting bit by bit, not not bit too many bit. changes. Yeah. Yes. While retaining the old, uh, what makes the old, you know. Yeah, what it is. what's really been great for us is like the, you know, when we're thinking about shared values and sort of what matters and what we want this podcast to look like. So since our focus is heavily, it's not the only thing, but it's the main thing. So it's heavily philosophical, heavily related uh -huh. to psychology, mental health, uh, kind of inner tools that we could sort of help people cultivate. So we kind of, we shifted from mental health experts to let's say uh, athletes, like uh, football players, pro wrestlers. And, you know, some of the thinking was like, okay, how are we going to fit it, fit this into what we do? And so, you know, even somebody would ask me, they're like, wait, how are you? You have like a 
philosopher on one day and then a pro wrestler on the other. Well, this is right. And it's sort of funny, right? Like, how does that yeah. work? Well, here's how it works, because a lot of what we talk about is, first of all, pro wrestlers are successful people, just like, you know, athletes are successful people, philosophers, psychologists, whatever. So the thing is, they have struggles and setbacks just like other people do. So when we're thinking about coping and sort of resilience and then cultivating these mental tools, they're actually just as big of a help as people who are like, you know, experts in the field who do research in it. So we had uh, the wrestler Diamond Dallas Page on, and he had this really great quote, which I feel like it could just be put on a wall somewhere. And he said, look, you know, never underestimate the power that other people give you by believing in you, but also never underestimate the power that you give to yourself by believing in you too. And I love that, right? Yeah. And so again, you, yeah, and you think about, you know, how these two worlds fit. And I'm like, actually, they're a perfect fit. Because if you're thinking about the underlying values, and I would say our mission statement here, you know, if there is one, it's to essentially help people become more resilient, uh, to help them deal with setbacks better, uh, to help them even cultivate tools again to believe in themselves. You can find that in so many different places just because it seems like different worlds. Like, yes, obviously, DDP is not an academic, but a lot of what he does, especially with his yoga practice, it helps people feel better about themselves. What I love about what you guys are doing in that regard is, I mean, then you become a bridge between theory and practice. Yes. I mean, you could decide at some point you split those podcasts or one replaces, but for at least now, it sounds like you've got a, a really beautiful synergy working between different types of individuals with a higher level mission. That's the connector. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. I love that. So well done. Mm. Thank you. And then so just a uh, final question before we go, because I felt like this was also another really important part of your book. So, you know, a lot of this, a lot of what we focus on is what we can do in sort of tools and, um, you know, kind of cultivating a different mindset. But then there's this other part of your book about serendipity and the role that luck plays in all of this, right? So can we talk a little bit about that? And this is going to be the, I guess, the final end point to our conversation. But can we talk about how it's not just what you do, but it's also sort of the opportunities that life presents to you and essentially not, not necessarily cultivating Cultivating them, but sort of putting yourself in the place to at least for at least for them to present themselves to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, serendipity is is a different version of improvisation in, in that it's very, but also very paradoxical. Because right. I think serendipity means planned luck. Mm -hmm. I mean, the simplest way I sometimes say this to my students is I I think about you know, uh, it's about how do you sharpen your peripheral vision so that you can make connections that take you to the next place, right? Mm -hmm. Being in the right place at the right time is more than luck, right? It's about putting yourself there. So it could be, I'm looking, I decided I'm going to get a new car. And the next thing you know, what, I'm talking to everybody about what do you have? What do you have? What do you like? And then I start to, you know, get a little more focused on, I think it's, you know, this particular model and this particular year. And suddenly I see them all over. Right. I start to it's like you've sensitized, you've heightened your senses with what's going on because you've said, I'm looking. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's where serendipity gets really powerful when it comes to innovation and learning, because you've basically said, I know what I'm looking for. I'm going to keep exploring. I I want to build people's resilience and capabilities. And you start to see new people and think, boy, wouldn't they be great to be on the show? Mm hmm. Right. You have a conversation and think, boy, that connects with so what so and so said. But it's because you've actually put yourself out there with this higher view build serves in some ways as this boundary for pulling people together. And you start taking risks. Right. I, can, I can imagine you guys do it all the time. But I'm mm -hmm. talking oftentimes to, you know, undergraduate students saying this is the time to take risks. And I'm not saying being crazy or dangerous, because then you say, but let's think about what you really want to get to. 
why would you do a study abroad? Why would you take a particular co-op? I mean, these sound like basic stories, but to an 18, 19, 20 year old, it's a big decision. Mm-hmm. And how do you do it in a way? I'm not just, you know, it's like being a tourist versus really doing something like study abroad. Are you letting it wash over you? Or you actually have your eyes wide open and you're looking for learning and possibilities and next opportunities. Now you've opened the door to serendipity. And that's where I think it gets really exciting for all of us. Right. I love that. And you also have a great personal story about how you became a dean. So this will be the last thing. Can you share that with us? Because that's a perfect example. Oh, of that, oh, I love that you pulled that one out. I think mm-hmm. about that one often. So um, I, on my own personal S-curve, I realized I was starting to lose my mojo. So I did a Fulbright in London, thinking that during this Fulbright that, well, maybe I'm going to stop being in administration and go back to research. So I'm giving my research everywhere. I mean, any place that would have me, all the major business schools. And I had this amazing day at Cass Business School, which is where I ended up becoming dean, sharing my research. I mean, I hit it off with everybody. I just loved it. But my last meeting, and maybe I won't say the business school actually, was at another business school. I can't remember if I said it in the book. And um, you, you did. <laughs> did I say it in the book? Okay. So yeah. it was the, the London Business School, which is a fantastic school, just a fantastic, and I really appreciate the people, but it was the worst presentation of my life because I was clearly in a room of economists and finance people who talking about paradox and philosophy was not hitting the mark. And so mm-hmm. for about an hour and a half, I was on the I was just trying to take calm breaths. I was trying to work through it. It was so bad. By the time I left, I walked the hour and a half home instead of getting on the tube. About a a year later, I'm sitting in my office at Cass in London, now a dean, having tea, which I had a lot of in London, with the the senior professor who was on the search firm. And I said to him, boy, I am so grateful for all the opportunities I took during that Fulbright. I mean, especially my visit to Cass. And he said, that's not why you're here. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I was in the audience at LBS. I said, that that was awful. That day was crazy. And he said, oh, no, Marianne, you missed the point. I walked out of that and I called the president of our university and I said, I think I might have just met our new next dean. Anybody who can take that barrage of tough questions for that long from outstanding faculty and keep smiling and be poised could be the Dean. Hmm. And I walked away thinking, you don't know, you don't know where your opportunities are. All you can do is put yourself out there for, for them to happen. And then the connections get made. I'm sure the cast visit mattered too, but who would have known that would have happened, but it took some risks yeah. and I'm glad I did it. And I will always remember that. And help myself be more courageous in taking bigger risks. I love that. Such an excellent story. All right, Alan, final questions for Marianne before we wrap up. Oh, yes. Uh, So if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and and of course, buy the book, uh, where where can we do that? Uh, Thank you. Um, I'm on all of the major channels, or we've got bothandthinking.net is a website that Wendy and I have started that we collect uh, podcast links and others so you can read what we've been doing. And we also just want to make sure that we're amplifying work of podcasts such as both of yours. I mean, I think this is a wonderful opportunity, again, to connect the dots between so many people one, doing really interesting work to help people think differently, be more resilient, be more connected, but also to your point, to study and learn from leaders and experts who are living it in their daily lives. So I appreciate this opportunity. Alan, Leon, it's really has been a pleasure. Absolutely. Wait, and Marianne, so social media links. Uh, my social media links are on um, 
and now you're going to question me. My other screen just went off. I'm on LinkedIn uh, and Instagram, Marianne W. Lewis. Find me Excellent. there. And you're and also on Twitter, right? I am on Twitter as well. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Absolutely, Marianne. Thank you so much Thank for coming so much. on. This was epic. Oh, my my appreciation. All the best to both of you. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Might be one of my favorite episodes yeah, in a while. I told you. And you know what? That's kind of increasingly been the thing I say. I know. But it's, I don't know. Did I call still, it? I told you. Good. Yeah. I told you. Well, anyway, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, where it's Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe. Hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And thank you again so much for watching and see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.